This episode of StarCourt Study Hall contains discussions and descriptions of violence and abuse. Please be mindful when choosing where or when to listen. StarCourt Study Hall contains spoilers for seasons 1 through 4 of Stranger Things and for Stranger Things The First Shadow. This episode may also contain graphic content and language not suitable for all listeners. The views and opinions expressed are those of the hosts, unless otherwise stated, and all content and characters are property of Netflix and the Duffer Brothers. I'm Amanda. I'm Marina. And and this this is Starcourt Study Study Hall. start today's episode by congratulating one of our listeners, Stefan, who put in our Discord that there is officially, in some weird way, a StarCourt study hall baby. Yes, so exciting. Congratulations, Stefan. I showed Amanda before we started recording. (laughs) I was like, you need to go look at the Introduce Yourself channel in our Discord. And this girl starts crying. I'm having a really emotional day writing this dang episode. Okay. Same. Same. Um, but yeah, we wanted to start off by congratulating you because, oh my God, this is, it's so sweet. The other thing we're going to say is this document is 27 pages long <laughs> because we like to indent and hit the tab key. So yes, don't be alarmed. Yeah. 27 pages sounds like a lot, but if you could see it, it doesn't, it doesn't look like as much as 27 pages sounds like. So never fear. It's going to fly by. (laughs) It always does. (laughs) The other thing that I'm going to say before we get going here is a quote from Amanda. And I thought it was so good, so I had to include it. Amanda said, how do we say so much and yet so little always? Because I came to a really stupid realization after we were done with last week's episode on Stranger Siblings. And that is that we talked about how in season two, Mike becomes kind of like a stand-in brother, but we don't talk about how Bob is a stand-in partner now for Joyce, meaning that Jonathan isn't needed as much. We never even mentioned Bob, ever. Only his death. <laughs> Only his death. We didn't, we didn't say a word about poor Bob and his contributions to the Byers family. So for that, we are sorry. (laughs) That was an oversight. Yeah. Sorry, Bob. And RIP. Yeah. So we thought that was worth mentioning because he really was like a partner for Joyce. Yeah. And he replaced that need that Jonathan was filling there for a while. Absolutely. All right. Anyway, on to this week. So today we're talking about more siblings and more trauma. Yes. Um, We are on Stranger Siblings Part 2. So today we're covering... Erica and Lucas and Maxine and Billy. Yes. And this week, our Mind Flayer assignments were as follows. (laughs) (laughs) Forgot about those. I got Lucas and Erica as my assigned sibling pair and Marina got Max and Billy. Yeah. And as we said at the end of last week's episode, we traded the trauma. Yes. So let's get started. Okay. 
So we're going to do the same thing we did last week, where we're going to go back and forth uh, between our pairs, season by season. And first, we're going to start out with our first impressions of each of our pairs. So with Lucas and Erica, here are some of my first impressions. So another another note, we don't get any interactions at all, or really any indications that Erica exists until season two. So all of these first impressions are going to be based on season two. So my first first impression was that they are kind of a distant pair. At first, it seems like these siblings are kind of so far apart in age that they couldn't really possibly have anything in common. They seem just two different planes, especially given the fact that Erica is a girl, Lucas is a boy. Like at that age, those two would have nothing really in common. So that's sort of how it's going when we first meet them. My second first impression was that they have kind of a healthy and expected dynamic between them. The Sinclairs, as a family, are definitely the most healthy family dynamic in this entire show. And we barely even see them. But hands down, this family is probably the healthiest dynamic in the show. Erica and Lucas are definitely distant and sometimes contentious with each other. But I think that they've definitely been encouraged to care about one another and definitely be good noodles. Be respectful and all that. Yeah, like it's pretty clear that they're getting good parenting at home and they're encouraged to care about each other. Agreed. And finally, I stole one from Marina's first impressions last week. I'm going to say these two are playful. Hmm. They're kind of like ball busters between each other. At first, this kind of goes in one direction where Erica (laughs) seems to just be bullying Lucas (laughs) and Lucas does nothing back. She's We're allowed. Like, yeah, right. Like I maybe it's in the beginning she's too young. He doesn't feel comfortable like getting back at her. I don't know. Yeah. But um eventually Lucas does get some digs in as well. And you know, at the end of the day it's all love between these two. So I think mm-hmm. that they are playful. I like that one. For Max and Billy, I have the complete opposite <laughs> assessment. So makes sense. Before before we get started into my Max Billy first impressions, I just want to make a note that I think this relationship is probably one of the show's most complex, and I think this complexity grows throughout the seasons as layers are added. They did a lot with a little with Max and Billy, and I think our understanding of Max and Billy in Mad Max is vastly different from our understanding of them by the piggyback. At least that was the case for me. Mm-hmm. Another special note, these two are step-siblings. They are not biological siblings. So as we know, Max's biological mother married Billy's biological father. For my first impressions, the first word that I selected was abusive. Billy is verbally, physically, and emotionally abusive to Max, and I don't think this can be overstated. Max does not also abuse Billy, obviously. She is a victim tasked with navigating the abuse And overall, their relationship dynamic is incredibly toxic. My second word that I chose was resentful. I do think these two mutually resent one another. Billy Mm -hmm. resents Max because A, he has been put in the position of taking care of her, watching her, babysitting her, etc. B, she symbolizes to him the brokenness of his family. And C, Neil doesn't abuse Max. So Mm -hmm. I think there is definitely some resentment on Billy's end for Max, and Max resents Billy because of how he treats her. I think Max would have accepted Billy had he accepted her. Finally, I chose the word volatile. Since we're doing first impressions and not long-term impressions, I chose this word. I remember being on edge in season two whenever these two shared a scene. 
It quite literally feels like at any moment it can boil over on either end. Mm -hmm. Max wouldn't be nearly as capable of violence as Billy is, but I do think there is volatility that permeates the entire relationship, not just Billy's side of things. I would agree. Yeah. So those are my first impressions for Max and Billy. Yeah. I think of how the track Photos in the Woods is used Mm. when when Billy is around a Mm -hmm. lot. And I think that that's just like the perfect embodiment of the feeling you get between these two. Yeah. It's a good point. So let's get into our trajectory between (laughs) our two sibling pairs. So let's start out strong with season one. All right. You Um, go first. (laughs) You go and then I'll go. Wow, it's going to be so quick. So season one, Erica and the Sinclairs are literally played by different actors in season one and don't have any speaking parts. So we can move on from season one. (laughs) All right. For Max and Billy, uh, for season one, they did not exist at all. So the end. (laughs) Okay, moving on. Glad we covered season one between these guys. Okay, now we can start with season two. Okay. There's still not much, but okay. here we go. So season two for Lucas and Erica. So the first time we see Lucas and Erica interact at all in the series is in Trick or Treat Freak. And it's while their mom, Sue Sinclair, by the way, takes pictures of Lucas. Wait a second. Pause. What? They're both named Sue? Wait, why are... <laughs> Susan Lucas- and Sue? Lucas's mom and Max's mom have the same name. Why have we never noticed this? But, like, also, why? Like, you're naming the characters. Just pick a different name. Yeah, why did they name her Sue? Why did they name... They both appeared in... <laughs> <laughs> they both appeared in season two. Why would they name them both Sue? Creativity maxed out Sue. It That's is. the last name we have left in, in the bucket to pick no from. other names in the world but Sue. No. So... The first time we see Erica and Lucas interact, like I said, in Trick or Treat Freak, it's when Sue Sinclair is taking pictures of Lucas in his Ghostbusters costume. Erica looks on, making fun of Lucas and calling him a nerd. Cute. This is a great way to introduce us to their sibling dynamic, for sure. Yeah. The next time Erica even appears in the show is in Dig Dug, when Lucas asks his dad what he does when his mom is wrong, and she's never wrong, son. (laughs) Never. That's it. They Erica one and Luke, line of the series. <laughs> she's never wrong, son. That's it. They don't even interact in this scene, Erica and Lucas, at all. But I wanted to dissect it and read more into it because that's what we do here. So Erica is pouring tons of syrup onto her French toast, I think. And Sue tells her, that's enough. To which a tiny nine-year-old Erica says, uh-uh. <laughs> this says two things to me. One, we are comfortable with expression and a little healthy boundary pushing in this household. Sure. I love that for Erica, that she feels comfortable telling her mom, no, I would like more syrup, thank you, (laughs) in her own Erica way. And then the second thing it tells me is when Erica finally concedes and she apologizes to Sue when she asks her a second time to cool it with the syrup. And yeah, Erica apologizes to her mom. She's like, sorry. And then she puts it away. And for as as sassy as Erica can be, she respects her parents a lot. So this tells us a lot about kind of the upbringing in the Sinclair household. There's a lot of room for expression of emotions and needs. And it's also clear that they've fostered a good environment of like open dialogue. Charles Sinclair is also a great example for his son. What a contrast to Neil. What a contrast. Right? Right? And it's such a, like, 
I actually didn't write this down, but I'm just kind of thinking about it. It's such a juxtaposition to the fact that the Hargroves are clearly racist. Yes. And and yet the one and only black family that is featured in the show is such a paragon of like healthy family dynamics and like success in the town and all of that. And like these people who are super racist are just like the worst of the worst. Also the choice to show these family dynamics simultaneously Mm -hmm. and bring Max and Lucas together in the season. Yes. I think that that's definitely significant after kind of like looking at it through this lens And then the next time we see Erica in season two is when Dustin realizes that Dart ate his cat. (laughs) What a strange sentence. Right? (laughs) And then he starts calling Lucas with a code red and Erica ends up picking Lucas's supercom because, because he's busy at the arcade asking Max if she accepts the risk. I never realized that this means that Erica is just chilling in Lucas's room right now. Very true, but also the fact that what's happening simultaneously here, which I never thought of, is that Dustin is having an emergency, ends up speaking with Erica, while Lucas is taking that risk with Max. Yeah, which is very similar to what is going on in season three with Dustin and Erica teaming up again. Yep. But yeah, so she's just chilling in his room, playing with his action figures, no boundaries here. And then she also has this back and forth with Dustin over the radio Where she just, like, straight up makes fun of him to his face. (laughs) And I feel like that implies that she's pretty comfortable with Lucas's friends. Yeah. Whether this is, like, due to her innate confidence that she was apparently born with or from, like, a previous relationship with Lucas's friends and being around them, we don't know. And then the storyline kind of extends into the spy when Lucas bursts into Erica's room looking for (laughs) (laughs) He-Man. She is not pleased with this. She does, she's not happy. And she asked Lucas, aren't you too old to be playing with toys anyway? And he's momentarily stunned into silence. <laughs> and he says, that's not the point. The point is to stay out of my room. And I love that because he realizes she's kind of right, <laughs> but will not admit that. <laughs> and I love it. He's just like blindsided by her honesty. And I love that. But then she tells Lucas about Dustin's repeated calls, clearly thinking this is a joke. And it's okay, Erica. You will understand soon enough. True. Yes. She doesn't realize the implications. <laughs> no. No. She thinks it's a joke. But yeah, that's that's kind of like the biggest interactions we have here when he bursts into her room and everything. So we can see that there's definitely some boundary pushing between these two. And then our very last scene, including Erica in season two, is in the gate when Lucas is practicing his moves for the snowball in the mirror. And... Erica just appears in his doorway, once again, barging. And she's like, not as much as I love you, Lukey. (laughs) (laughs) No boundaries from this little one. But I think it's like, it feels very natural, I think, right? Like, I feel like that's just what younger siblings do to their older siblings. It reminds me of that time. It reminds me of your sister's comfort with us. Yeah. (laughs) When she was little. Like, that's probably... Not quite as much, like that same age gap between Erica and Lucas was your sister and us. Probably a little bit smaller for them. Yeah, actually. Because Kate is is six years younger than us. Yeah, so I would say that Lucas and Erica are what, like three, two, three years apart? Yeah, not not much. Because Erica's in middle school already by the time they moved to high school. So yeah, two two years younger. Because if she's in seventh grade, depending on when middle school starts. Yeah, there might start sixth. But yeah. That's what it reminds me of is how comfortable your sister was with yeah. us. Yes. She just never gave a shit. No. And yeah. And honestly, my sister was like 
like Erica, but toned down a little, but very confident, very uh, willing to barge in anytime. Yes. Yes. Still is. Love you, Kate. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't want to leave season two. We don't really have much from Erica, but I don't want to leave season two without talking about a TV trope, the sassy black woman. I think that is very important to bring up here. Agreed. So here's a quote from tvtropes.org, our favorite place. Our sponsor. Is it org? Okay, I was right. It's an org. Here's a quote. She's defined by her vivaciousness, humor, and joie de vie, and can make... I know, I can speak French now. And... And can make a good counterpoint to the more grim or snarky members of the cast. These characters usually make good leaders because though generally fun and insightful, they are still firm in decisions, trustworthy, and speak their minds. Okay. Sounds like Erica to me a little bit. It does. So by the end of season two, I was definitely nervous that the writers were falling into this dated and very racist trope. But I just wanted to introduce this concept so we can bring it up later again, as we do luckily see this stereotype start to fall away from Erica. I think they they do a great job of correcting any sort of implications of that stereotype appearing. But it was just something I wanted to bring up because I know it was something that crossed my mind when Erica was first introduced as a like more main character. Mm-hmm. But I think I think we can agree that by, you know, season four who she is is not that person no and her contributions change yes too i think let's get into season two billy and max i am not (laughs) i am not a billy apologist even though as we go through this it might seem like i am i'd like to start off maxine's and billy's trajectory by defining abuse and the behaviors of abusers and i want to make a point to mention that domestic violence does not only occur between romantic partners because even in researching some of this stuff it's always so centered around spouse and and romantic partner and that's just like so totally not 100 percent of the time the case mm-hmm Domestic violence can be between parents and children. It can be between siblings, spouses, partners, and any pair occupying the same domestic space. A quick dictionary definition, violent or aggressive behavior within the home. I compiled from a few different sources the signs of abuse, and I isolated specifically what we see displayed between Max and Billy. So this list is by no means exhaustive. Possessiveness, unpredictability, a bad temper, verbal abuse, name-calling, insulting, extremely controlling behavior, blaming the victim for anything bad that happens, demeaning the victim, either privately or publicly, intimidating you through threatening actions or looks. We first meet Max and Billy in Chapter 1 of Season 2, Mad Max, when Billy aggressively pulls into the Hawkins High parking lot. They both get out of the car, and Max skateboards away, saying... Not one word to her mullet-donning, cigarette-smoking brother. Right off the bat, I think we can deduce that this relationship is not in a good place at all. I will say, though, Billy does give Max a look when she skateboards away. It does read a little bit to me like hurt or disappointment. Hmm, I can see that a little bit. Yeah, I included a, a little screenshot. Another side note, it's funny to me that Billy has no school supplies. He has no backpack, no notebook. He's completely empty-handed, which reminds me of a certain other someone who we said doesn't feel the need to invest in himself. That's so true. In Trick or Treat Freak, we get our first real scene with Max and Billy after school when Max joins Billy at his car. This is a lot to unpack. By this point, we've already seen Dustin and Lucas trying to connect with Max over trick-or-treating. She's the new girl in town. She is a bit like the abrasive side of a sponge. 
Um, but she does entertain their idea and you can tell she's glad to make a connection. You mean, you mean abrasive? <laughs> you said she's like the abrasive side of the sponge. You mean she's abrasive? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Listen, okay. I wanted to use a simile. <laughs> <laughs> Billy greets Max with you're late again. So right away, the impression we get is that Billy has been charged with taking Max to and from school a task that he clearly resents. Mm -hmm. But we also understand that this seems to happen frequently again. Again. So, so I can't help but wonder if Max is just trying to kill as much time as possible to avoid being near him. Mm, that feels possible. Mm. Or she's just being a smart ass and likes to keep him waiting. It could be one or the other. Could be. I wouldn't keep this man waiting. I would be afraid. Say he proceeds to tell her that she's skating home, but then she gets in the car anyway. I would just skate home. I, I said, Maxine, skating home is the better option. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. If Billy was really going to make Max skate home, though, he would have left her. So I have a question. Does any percentage of Billy actually care for Max? And to that end, he literally cannot care for Max without also complying with Neil. Yeah, it's hard to say. I feel like it's very possible that his only motivation for appearing to care for Max is to avoid punishment from Neil. Right. And then how do you reconcile associating caring for your little sister with being abused? Mm -hmm. you, would, you would grow to hate your little sister, I think. Yeah, I agree. So Billy is now speeding with a child in the passenger seat. He is reckless not only with Max's life, but with his own. And then also with the lives of Mike, Dustin, and Lucas. In this scene, he openly voices his displeasure with Hawkins. It's such a shithole. Max is like, no, it's not that bad. And Billy responds by rolling down the windows and inhaling the actual smell of shit because farms and stuff. Mm. You smell that, Max? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Billy gets on Max's case for defending Hawkins as if because he disapproves of it, she must also disapprove of it. Mm. I think amongst many other things, Billy is incredibly alone. In a lot of ways, Max is his only companion. He's arguably so alone that even her deviating from him in something as simple as an opinion feels threatening. Of course, this fear of abandonment and loneliness is probably entirely subconscious on his part. Therefore, it manifests as abuse in the form of control over Max's thoughts and feelings. And we do see her succumb to the control. It's just we're stuck here. So, you know, she kind of just surrenders there yeah it's like a like a concession that she makes to be like well i don't i don't like it but you know we're making the best of it exactly she backtracks she does and it appears as though billy gets what he wants from her right she tells him what he wants to hear she succumbs to his attempt at control she's safe but no she's not because she is then immediately punished for it you're right we're stuck here and whose fault is that Max then makes the fatal mistake of being fresh. God for damn bid. When Billy challenges her on whose fault it is that they're in Hawkins, which, by the way, it's really neither of their faults. Okay. No. Neither of them are responsible for this. Max whispers under her breath, yours. And this sends Billy into an absolute rage. And Max knows immediately that she shouldn't have done that. It, it upset, upset him. him. <laughs> <laughs> Billy begins to disgustingly taunt Max, demanding that she admit that it's her fault because it absolutely must be anyone's fault but his. Say it, Max. Say it. He then screams at her. Say it. It's terrifying. She won't, though. So he begins to behave homicidally 
threatening to speed up to hit Dustin, Lucas, and Mike, who are biking home. The whole time, he's ignoring Max's pleas for him to slow down, instead proceeding to rock out to Wango Tango with his tongue lolling out of his mouth. (laughs) Max seizes the steering wheel from her brother and swerves so they don't hit Mike, Lucas, and Dustin. Billy, on the other hand, absolutely revels in the fact that that was a close one, huh? He cackles as Max looks around, completely panicked. A few things about this. Max seizing the steering wheel is pretty indicative of the fact that she feels responsible for controlling Billy's impulses. Mm -hmm. You should not feel responsible for, for controlling anybody's impulses but your own. Also, in a twisted way, Max is also made to feel responsible for any potential harm that could have come to Dustin, Lucas, and Mike. Because if she just complied with Billy and quote-unquote said it, he wouldn't have gone into a rage, theoretically. And finally, I think it's pretty evident that Max is afraid of her brother for very good reason. Yeah. Before we move on from this scene, I want to talk about wounds. Not terrible ones, but inner child wounds. And narcissistic wounds. Hmm. Narcissistic wounds. I personally hate the term narcissist. I think it's been overused and I think its meaning is it's like diluted. I also don't feel comfortable diagnosing anyone. We know this. Um, That's not our right to do. Narcissistic personality disorder is an actual disorder that is serious. I'm not throwing it around. However, I do feel comfortable discussing the concept of a narcissistic wound. Have you ever heard of these? I've not. So according to choosingtherapy.com, narcissistic injury, sometimes known as a narcissistic wound, a wounded ego, or an ego deflation, happens when those with NPD face criticism, betrayal, or perceived abandonment. Narcissists often respond to perceived slights with hostility disproportionate to the event. Do I think we see this in Billy? Yes. Max made a fresh remark and Billy had an incredibly disproportionate and rageful reaction. But what's at the root of the reaction? So this is what I think. I think that at the root of the reaction is Billy's narcissistic injury or his inner child wound. According to cptsdfoundation.org, the concept of the inner child was first proposed by psychologist Carl Jung. We've talked about this. Mm -hmm. After he examined his own childlike inner feelings and emotions. Young postulated that it was this inside part of all of us that influenced all we do and the decisions that we make. Unfortunately, it is also these inner children who absorb all the negative and harmful words and actions of those who are supposed to keep us safe. Once wounded, these inner children negatively influence who we are as adults, holding enormous power over our relationships and decisions. The article goes on to outline the many ways in which the inner child wound is formed, all of which largely have to do with neglect and abuse. One that stands out to me in regards to Billy is continuous shaming by caregivers. And Max completely unknowingly poked Billy's inner child wound when she deflected the blame back to him. He has been blamed by Neil and by proxy, feels responsible for every adverse event in his life, namely his mother abandoning him. So Max also dishing out blame is entirely unacceptable to him. Mm. And we're going to see this more later, this like this absorption that he's done of taking fault and blame. So when Max was like, it's your fault. She poked a bruise. Yeah. Completely unknowingly. And she suffered the consequence. Mm -hmm. In Trick or Treat Freak, Billy is crowned Hawkins' new keg king. Yay. Congratulations. (laughs) Congratulations. As if he needed any more reasons to be an egomaniac. 
Max also goes trick-or-treating in Loch Nora in an attempt to make some friends. In the Pollywog, Max continues to grow her budding relationship with the boys and Billy continues to assert dominance over Steve. <laughs> the need for Billy to assert dominance over Steve feels a little bit to me like, I am not the alpha male in my household, therefore I must be the alpha male at school. Yeah. He can't control his personal environment, so he must control his social one. Meanwhile, Steve is just trying to play basketball. <laughs> Plant your feet. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> also, just an observation, Billy's tongue is literally always out. <laughs> so in the spirit of this podcast, I just need to say, put that thing back where it came from. Or so help me. Or so help me. <laughs> so help me. Once again, in Will the Wise, Billy shows Steve who's boss by turning off the shower while Steve has soap in his eyes. And honestly, this is a pristine way to assert dominance. Yeah. Did he get that move from like wolves? Good for okay. him. You know what this reminded me of? This reminded me of the time that Kate put whipped cream in Redacted. his hands and rendered him completely incapacitated. <laughs> You remember that? Yes, that's some diabolical <laughs> shit. Like, what was that? I don't know. Like, that was like a like a saw trap. <laughs> she was like, like, let's play a game. Yeah. <laughs> and then he can't do anything because he has peanut, uh, not peanut butter, whipped cream in his hands. That's so funny. Oh, my like, God. It has the same... Yes. Turning off the shower water when somebody has opened their eyes, they're completely it's, blind. It's like the, it's like so innocuous, but so like debilitating. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that thing, like if, if you were a burglar who only, like only did inconvenient things, what would you do? Take the plate out of the microwave. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Take the batteries out of the remotes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. I do think it's meaningful that we see Billy engage with Steve twice in this capacity. Mm. And then it is Steve later on who confronts Billy in defense of Max. We're also seeing in Will the Wise that Max is being kept on the fringe of the party in this chapter. Mm. Rejected by Mike. The only one keeping the door open for her is Lucas. But as we also learn in this chapter, not only is Billy an abuser, but he's also a racist piece of shit. Yep. After school, Billy watches as Max interacts with Lucas. Like a weirdo. He's just standing there watching. Yeah. When Max gets to his car, Billy immediately confronts her, asking her who that was. Max lies. He's no one. This kid from my class. I think she's saying this largely to protect Lucas from Billy, but also to protect herself, mm -hmm. which, by the way, is impossible. Billy exerts control again, but under the guise of protecting her, looking out for her. This is in your best interest. You're a piece of shit, Max, but we're family now, whether we like it or not, meaning I'm stuck looking out for you. Billy then gets physical with Max. He demands that she stay away from people like Lucas. And I do think this interaction is racially motivated because mm -hmm. I don't really see Billy getting bent out of shape about Max being friends with Dustin or Mike. Right. I, I just don't really see him giving a shit. Yeah. Part of me wants to say that maybe he's trying to control her relationships in general, keep her isolated. But this just feels so specific to Lucas to me. Yeah, I think so, too, because especially like I was thinking while you were saying when Billy is like, you know, we're family now. We have like I have to look out for you, whatever. That almost feels like a trying to deflect that blame back onto Max. Like I'm stuck looking out for you. Yeah. And two, it's like him trying to convince her that he has her best interest at heart. So she complies better, maybe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Especially the part about the making it seem like you're protecting her. 
-hmm. Because what that also does very subtly is it makes you start to question your own judgment. Yes. Am I not sufficient at protecting myself? Beyond all that, though, Billy's tone is threatening to Max. This isn't just stay away from him. This is stay away from him or else. Yeah. And he doesn't say or else, but he doesn't need to. In Dig Dug, Max accepts the risk. Billy once again takes a threatening tone with, her, with his sister when he picks her up from the arcade and he spots Lucas in the doorway. Max identifies Lucas by name, but continues to downplay their friendship. And Billy says, you know what happens when you lie. And I just need to know what does happen when she lies. Well, later we find out. Yeah. In the buyer's home. Yep. In The Spy, we get that terrifying scene at the Hargrove Mayfield household. My first observation is Susan and Neil are not here at work, out, but probably out because Mm -hmm. this is the same day that everything else goes on when Billy's like you were three hours late. Yeah. So for the time being, Billy is in charge here. His father's out of the house. Lucas comes to the door looking for Max while Billy is pumping iron inside while smoking a cigarette and chugging a beer. Of course. Much help. <laughs> Max then lies to Billy when he confronts her about who was at the door. Mormons. Mormons. Talkative ones. <laughs> Later on, Lucas and Max talk on the roof of the school bus in the junkyard, and Max tells Lucas that her biological dad is still in California. She explains divorce and mentions how Susan and Neil wanted a fresh start away from her dad. And this is the first direct glimpse into the Mayfield-Hargrove family dynamic that we are given. We also find out that Max seems pretty aware of Billy's emotional turmoil and displacement. She says, my stepbrother has always been a dick, but now he's just angry all the time. And, well, he can't take it out on my mom. So this is some mature, I grew up too fast shit. Yeah. The fact that she can identify that she's Billy's target and why she's Billy's target. And it's clear to some degree that she hasn't internalized it. Yeah. If she's able to identify that it's it's for this reason. It's not me. Right. Like, it almost makes it seem like she's okay being that person because he needs it. Sure. Interesting. Like, she's willing to absorb it. Yeah. Like, I mean, I don't think she actually is, but just, like, the way that she mm-hmm. frames it here is, like, you know, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for Max to understand why she's Billy's target is so critical to breaking a cycle of like generational trauma, mm-hmm. especially because she's not necessarily going to internalize and take it personally why she's being treated that way. Yeah. Max mentions then how she never wants to be like Billy. And I think this is a far cry from how the rest of our younger siblings feel about their older siblings. I think Will, Mike, and Erica would be proud to grow up and share traits with Jonathan, Nancy, and Lucas. Yeah. Billy and Max are obviously not in the lost sister, but I do think it's funny how in the mind flayer, Billy is tasked with locating his lost sister. (laughs) (laughs) That's so true. The mind flayer starts after the title card with this troubling scene between Billy, Susan, and Neil. The DBs were pretty strategic in their timing of this, letting us see Billy's behavior for several chapters before showing us the root of it. Mm -hmm. Susan calls out to Max... And Billy and looks in Max's room to find her, but she's obviously not there because the demodogs are attacking. And not to mention her window is wide open. Meanwhile, Billy is smoking in his room, getting ready for a hot date. Susan timidly knocks on Billy's door and he's like, yeah, I'm a little busy here, Susan. (laughs) (laughs) 
cast anybody else in this role and they didn't. I just need to say that. So true. But then, but then Neil demands that his son open the door right now. And he says, Billy says, what's wrong? And Neil says, why don't you tell us? And Billy says, because I don't know. <laughs> That's so real. Like, it's just, it's why just, did our parents always do that? I don't, I don't fucking know what's wrong. Just tell me. Just tell me. Stop quizzing me. Okay. <laughs> I just want to take a second to put this scene of Neil and Billy next to the scene of Joyce and Jonathan at the beginning of The Vanishing of Will Byers. Obviously, they are very different for several reasons, but at their core, they are the same. You mm-hmm. have a younger sibling that you are responsible for, and they are missing. Billy defends himself, saying that they were three hours late, which tells me that Billy's time is not respected. Mm-hmm. Remember when Max was late to his car? You're late. Yeah. He also apologizes to his father. I'm sorry, okay? And then Neil proceeds to insult his son, sorry in advance, by calling him a faggot. He also later calls Billy's date a whore. We don't even know who Billy's date is or was. She doesn't even have a name. Nope. We can't really wonder at the root of Billy's prejudice. Yeah. I also think Neil's use of the first slur, which I'm not going to repeat, is meant to degrade Billy's masculinity. This is very likely not the first time any of this has happened. So Billy is always overcompensating with masculinity that has become toxic. See his interactions with Steve that have been misconstrued as sexual in moments. Mm -hmm. Billy retaliates saying he's been looking after Max all week, which is true. And he proceeds to tell them that Max is 13. She shouldn't need a full-time babysitter. Not to mention she's not his sister. So it's very clear that what Neil has done is nurtured an environment of resentment between Max and Billy. And then again, in an alarming but unsurprising turn of events, Neil gets physical with Billy. He pins him against the wall and proceeds to punch him in the face. Susan winces, clearly powerless. And I have to wonder if Billy sees in Susan another woman, a mother figure, abandoning him with his abusive father. Yeah. Not to mention... Billy has had physical violence modeled for him. Neil then says to Billy, what did we talk about? And Billy says, respect and responsibility. And Neil also demands that Billy apologize to Susan. Also, Billy is going to go look for his sister and cancel his date. Isn't that right, Billy? Yes, sir. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. Yes, sir. And this reminds me of him demanding Max to say it. And then Billy begins to cry. So Billy is expected to be respectful, but he himself is not respected. Mm -hmm. Neil also uses the term responsibility. We already spoke about how Billy likely feels responsible for the adverse events of his childhood that have persisted into his adolescence. He's also expected to stop doing the thing that he was doing for himself. Which, as an isolated incident, so what? Big deal. But this clearly isn't an isolated sacrifice. The sacrifice is expected and frequent. He has no control here. Therefore, he must exert maximum control in situations where he can. Mm -hmm. The bottom line is that Billy himself is abused. And if efforts are not made to break the cycle of abuse, it will continue. In this instance, Billy is Neil's target and Max is Billy's target. And I'm sure Neil was someone's target, too. Back to those ACEs that we talked about in part one, those adverse childhood experiences. Here are some examples that pertain to Billy and also Max. Domestic violence, parental abandonment through separation or divorce, 
being the victim of abuse, physical, sexual, and or emotional, being the victim of neglect, physical, and emotional. A quote before we move on, if the parents are quick to anger, act unreasonably, and lash out regularly, the child would also think these are acceptable behaviors. And if the parents abuse, abuse one of the siblings, the abused child may let out their resentment toward a younger sibling and continue the cycle of abuse within the family. I hate that scene. Same. All right. Let's get some levity in here. <laughs> let's talk about Mrs. Wheeler. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's been a while. It's been a while since we had one of those. Not going to lie. I was thrilled to get to revisit this dynamic. I don't know, I know. what that says about me, but like... <laughs> I was absolutely like, I was, I just love this dynamic. I, again, I, I don't know. know what that says about me. In the gate, Billy is on a hunt for Max and he ends up at the wheelers flirting with Mike's mom instead. <laughs> <laughs> totally. It happens. It's just, you, know, just, you just fall into those situations, you know? I know. Sometimes you just get lost, <laughs> end up at the wheelers flirting with Karen, eating cookies. It happens. Oh my God, I can't. I don't want to do too much of this right now because obviously this is truly meant for season three. Yeah. Um. However, Karen is romancing herself in the tub with some smut and candles and wine. Good for and her. her. Someone's bel- got to do it. Someone has to romance Karen. Right? Ted's not let's doing in- it. Let's introduce someone to do that. Yay. Hooray. Um, her baloney sandwich of a husband, Ted, just simply <laughs> cannot answer the door. Ted! Ted! <laughs> <laughs> Billy rings this bell nearly 15 times, by the way, which, like, Excuse me. 15 times. Sorry. This is why there are way fewer serial killers these days. Just saying. Okay. Because if someone. right about that. If someone rang my doorbell one time, I would hit the deck and pretend I wasn't here. Okay. <laughs> the deck. 15 times. <laughs> Stop, drop, and roll. I, right. That's why I have a ring camera. Okay. I want to see who's there. If I don't know who they are or I'm not expecting them, I don't, I don't exist. I'm not here. Remember when we used to do like that segment of what would this show be like in 2022? Oh my gosh. Imagine if there was a ring doorbell in this scene. <laughs> She'd be and like, Karen who? could just take open, oh, take her phone off the ledge of the bathtub and like check on who was at the door. Yeah. And she wouldn't have had to have moved. She could have just sat there with her book. And then she could have just talked to him through the ring camera <laughs> and told him where to go. <laughs> we don't want any. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> I don't want any thin mints. Okay. <laughs> Anyway, these two flirt, okay? You know, she lets him in after he looks like he literally just walked off the cover of her Harlequin novel. Billy turns on the charm. He's just so worried about his sister who has been missing all day. All day. All day. And Billy mentions how he went to the Sinclairs first, which is actually terrifying. That is so terrifying because, like, you... It's not even terrifying because you think he mistreated them. It's terrifying because you know he was like a full, like, Patrick Bateman switch up when he oh, talked yeah. to them. Like, he was in full fake yep. nice mode. And that this. is the scary. Yes, it's so scary. I did not, like like I said about NPD, I am not going to armchair diagnose this person at all. But he certainly does have some tendencies of yes. some things. Yes, for sure. Karen invites him in for cookies and sexual tension before giving Billy the buyer's address. How do I get invited to that? Cookies and sexual tension. <laughs> Let's have a party, a cookies and sexual tension. Party. Right after the worms and dirt. Party. <laughs> oh my goodness. K 
Karen tells Billy to tell Mike to come home already. And this has Nancy leaving Mike with Steve energy. Because <laughs> anybody ever thought to tell Mike themselves to come home? Back to Mike here. No. But Karen is giving this random hunk of a man <laughs> this message to relay to her son. It's so weird. It is just very strange. When Billy does finally show up at the buyer's, Max is like, he'll kill me. He'll kill us. It's great. <laughs> Billy and Steve share a moment where they urge one another to not cream their pants, amigos. Mm. Highlight of the show. <laughs> then a brief, a brief fight ensues because Steve is hiding Max, but not before Billy's tongue gets involved again. Yeah. I love it when Billy is like, then who is that? When Max has her head like <laughs> peeked up <laughs> out of the window. I know. Billy also calls his sister a bit of a bitch. We do not hear any of the other siblings use this language about each other. No. Wait, I just wanted to interject. I'm sorry. I know yeah. that, that Nancy definitely does call Mike an asshole. Like, totally different. But, but Yes, but in a completely different context, like not in any sort of serious way. No, no. And then Mike laughs it off. Exactly. And like, there's also something different about the language of bitch coming from an older brother to a younger yes. sister. Yes. It's just not appropriate to say that no. about a young girl when you're an older man or really yep. anytime and yeah it definitely harkens back to neil hargrove referring to this young lady he doesn't even know as a whore and then earlier i didn't mention it when they're driving and billy rolls down the window and he meant makes the comment about the hawkins he's like have you seen the high school girls yeah like he like he refers to the high school girls as cows basically as cows yeah mm -hmm. so we can see where again what behavior is modeled no we do not drink respect women juice in this house no we don't we don't drink respect juice at all at all it is, it is not served at this bar no no respect juice to be had at the hargrove household no when billy goes inside to find max he goes full neil hargrove you disobeyed me and you know what happens when you disobey me he then does to Lucas exactly what Neil just did to him, pins him against the wall. This is a large, scary man physically assaulting a tiny child. Yeah. Imagine being 19 years old and your biggest enemy is like a boy in like eighth grade. Yeah. Imagine being like eight years old and your biggest enemy is your father. Yeah, exactly. During Billy's and Steve's actual altercation, Billy angrily tells Steve, no one tells me what to do, which is false, amigo, because you're only here because someone told you what to do. So true. I have to wonder if when Billy is pummeling Steve with punch after punch, he is actually seeing Neil. Hmm. Max then saves the day with the leftover sedative from Will. She gets her moment and stabs her brother in the neck with it. He collapses and she demands that he leave her and her friends alone. Say you understand. Say it. So good. And Max, in a eerie way, used the same language that Billy used on her in yeah, Trick she, or Treat Freak. She took it back. She did. And then... We just, we hearken back to this, like, demanding that someone say something so many times in this show. Yes. Like, say you understand. Mm -hmm. I did this all for you, Eleven. You know, all that. Or Hopper. Yeah. And, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Brenner. Yes. Tell me you understand. Yeah. Like, people, everybody in the show wants somebody else to say something so badly. Right. But also, like, when you think of Brenner and Billy as, as the abusers that they are. Mm-hmm. 
and at the absolute like deeply buried underneath all of the layers of 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 whatever yeah is just a desire to be understood and and cared about i think and seen i know right let's vomit the end i'm gonna throw up (laughs) okay season three let's talk about erica and lucas in season three where we're finally getting some interaction between these two just a little just a bit just a smidge so side note again Lucas and Erica pretty much spend this entire season apart, except for like three scenes. So I guess I don't really need to say that at the top because <laughs> that's essentially what happened in season two as well. Yeah. So I'm going to talk more about like Erica's kind of character development that comes about. I know we just put on the same chapstick <laughs> at the same time. That was wild. We're going to talk a little bit about Erica's character development that happens in this season a little more because she gets that uh, whether that is linked to Lucas right now or not, it it's not, but we're going to talk about Erica. So she's finally making her way to the forefront in this season. She already appears right at the top of Susie, Do You Copy? She and Lucas have this silly exchange in the middle of the mall, which she starts, by the way. She, she, she makes fun of Lucas and uh, they go back and forth. But it does look like Erica has an established group of friends now. Who she's hanging out with, even though they all look like they're like at least two grades younger than her. Interesting. Did you notice that? Now that you're saying it, yeah. They look I think really that's young. Meaningful, actually. Right? Like, has she like like Regina George, like in school? Has she created like a like a little a little posse of followers? I mean, I guess it could be a couple things. It could be a growth spurt. Like okay, maybe that's true. Maybe, you know, at that age, how girls get very tall and then that's true. And and the other thing is that Priya Ferguson is not the age that she is supposed to be portrayed as. No. So they might be surrounding her with younger people to make her look younger, perhaps. But That's it, true, too. But it kind of just made her look older in contrast. It did. Um, yeah. Anyway, Max pulls Lucas away from this interaction, sarcastically telling him that that was mature. <laughs> which I'm choosing to infer from this that Max has more of like a she's a kid kind of approach to interacting with Erica and I think she tries to encourage Lucas to like be the bigger person that's I don't know that's my inference here it also seems like Erica doesn't know Max or yeah. interact with her much I'm not really sure it seems like they don't know each other which I guess makes sense because Erica and Lucas don't really interact at this point so why would she interact with his girlfriend I don't know right so throughout the mall rats and the case of the missing lifeguard, Lucas is busy with the boys trying to buy something to make Elle forgive Mike and also being bullied into playing D&D by Will. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, funny that we did not realize in season two, Mr. Sinclair's advice to Lucas was, I apologize, then get your mother whatever she wants. Yeah. And that's what Lucas tells Mike to do. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And like, again, this this what behavior is being modeled for us, right? Right. Concede. Yeah. Yep. Just concede. <laughs> Erica's only appearance in those two chapters is to literally just bother Robin for free samples. <laughs> so she doesn't get much character development in those two. Um, she didn't know how good she had it. I know, right? She should have just minded her own business. Literally. <laughs> in the sauna test, Erica agrees to go into the vents to find the Russian bunker, but only for free ice cream for life. In caps. Okay. In caps. I just love seeing Erica like advocate for herself here. Again, I think this is just like super indicative of a loving and supportive home life. And also Mm -hmm. it's just like who Erica is. Child endangerment. Okay. 
Project Child Endangerment. Project, or was it Operation? Operation, yeah. <laughs> Child Endangerment. Um, these siblings are still on their separate journeys, though in the flayed, Erica is finally being brought into the fold. Unfortunately, the way that it happens is putting her into serious danger. I can't. Uh, <laughs> she is like, she's 10 oh, in this season. Baby. She's 10 years old in this season. Erica, Dustin, Steve, and Robin Tower of Terror their way down into the Russian bunker. We also learn about Tina, Erica's friend who apparently always covers for her. And I need to know what other nonsense Erica Seriously. is getting into. <laughs> Why are there so many occasions that she needs to be covered? I know. What it, Erica is 10. What is she doing? But anyway, in these next few chapters, Dustin starts to become like a proxy little brother or older brother for Erica, uh, which is very cute. So, he does. So I'm going to talk about like their dynamic a little bit too, just to talk about the way that Erica treats someone she views as a sibling, I guess, mm -hmm. because we don't get much with her with Lucas. So I wanted to call attention between the scene of Erica and Dustin in the vents in that one chapter, you know, the one um, that I can't say. E pluribus unum. <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> you can speak French, but you can't yeah. say e pluribus unum. Yeah. Dustin is pretty much explaining the events of the last two seasons to Erica. And he's finishing up the part about burning the hub when the scene starts. And Erica believes everything about this except the fact Lucas Charles Sinclair was there for all of it. <laughs> it shows what she thinks about her brother. I know. Like, she's like, uh, Lucas? Lu Lucas Charles Sinclair. That's him. Which, like, LCS. Also, that's really cute. That it is. Lucas's middle name is Charles, his dad's yeah, name. His, is Erica's middle name Susan? Maybe. Erica Sue. Wait, that's so Aww, cute. That is adorable. Erica, Erica Sue. Sue. Aww. Anyway, it. we love it. <laughs> Nothing but net. <laughs> After this. <laughs> I don't even know. After this, uh, Dustin teases Erica about her obvious nerdiness. After she does all this math in her head. Yeah. Like how far they had to go down the Russian hallways and stuff. Um, number one, I love this because I think Erica needed to be told that, that despite her best efforts, she is indeed a nerd. This is not something you can fight. Nope. And number in. two, I love Dustin here in this older brother role explaining to Erica that there's nothing wrong with being a nerd and you should just embrace it. And hey, doesn't that remind you of a certain other interaction between two it siblings does. about being a freak and letting your freak flag fly? Yeah. So, love that. So true. I know. I never noticed that until doing this. No, like, me neither. And yes. it occurred to me before you were, you, like, <laughs> I was like, it's occurring to me as yeah. she's reading it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But yeah, in case you don't know what I'm referring to, I'm talking about the interaction between Jonathan and Will in Trick or Treat Freak when he talks about how it's totally okay to be a freak because freaks are more interesting than normal people anyway. The next scene with Dustin and Erica is when these two find the golf cart and Erica finds the cattle prod taser thing. Yeah. Side note, did we ever discuss that this is probably how they got the Demogorgon into the cage? Did we? We talked about it. Okay. Yep. Just we making did. sure. Yes. Um, but Erica mentions the cage and how it probably would fit a Demogorgon. And I love that because it shows that she was really listening to everything that Dustin said. And while her discovery of this weapon did end up saving their lives, when Dustin asks her to cool it with the weapon, she listens right away. And I love that because our girl Erica is her independent self, but she listens and cares about people she respects. But and I think like, that's so cool. 
cool it with the with the with the pancake syrup. And she did. Yes. Oh wow. Yeah. Like the same thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And this instance, along with how it's like clearly illustrated that she listened and cared and believed Dustin, we are seeing that TV trope definitely falling away. We're getting a more well-rounded character here. Yes. And I love that. At the beginning of the bite, we see Lucas take the lead on hacking away at that skin spider tentacle, which is a disgusting sentence. Funny how we talked about how Jonathan and Lucas were the two protective friends in this scene. They were Mm -hmm. the ones really taking action. We also see Erica and Dustin kind of swap roles with Steve and Robin. They sort of become the older siblings because Steve and Robin are super drugged on truth serum. Right. Yes. Yes. I see what you're saying. So Dustin tries desperately in the elevator to figure out what is wrong with them. And weirdly, it's Erica who deduces that they have been drugged. (laughs) What experience do you have with this, Erica? Right. So in the next few scenes, Erica lets Dustin take the lead on watching Steve and Robin, and she trusts him as kind of the older brother figure here. And then when Dustin goes to call the others for a ride, Erica promptly fails at her one and only job of keeping track of the dinguses. And this is a nice reminder that Erica is 10 in this season, despite her her, her adult-like behavior. And I just wanted to point out that when, when Dustin comes back and discovers that Erica has lost Steve and Robin, he doesn't freak out. Like, no. he's just like, where did they go? Like, he's, you know, scared, but he doesn't yell at Erica or anything like that. No. He doesn't blame her. And I think that that's, like, such a sweet kind of call out to the fact that, like, Dustin recognizes that she's still a little kid. She, she is Ted. Yeah. Finally, at the end of the chapter, Lucas and Erica reunite, kind of. Their first interaction is, Lucas? And then he says, what are you doing here? Aw. <laughs> <laughs> such love. No hug. No nothing. That's it. Nothing. But but why does this not being a hug feel different than Nancy and Mike not hugging? Yeah, I, I agree. it does. I think it's because Nancy and Mike have this very shared experience of losing someone to the upside down. Right. That they've gone through together. And like, yeah, Erica and Lucas don't have as heavy stakes right now, I guess. I yeah, don't know. And I, I also wonder with the with the scene from the piggyback between Erica and Lucas in mind, how that changes our perception of them in the the seasons previously, that like incredibly devastating experience. Yeah. So I just, I wonder how that impacts how we feel. Yeah, I know. It's kind of interesting. I was thinking that throughout this too, like we don't see them hug or anything. And yet it doesn't feel as weird as Nancy and Mike not hugging or interacting or comforting each other. It doesn't. And I wonder if it's because we've been shown the capacity whereas with Nancy and Mike we've not even seen a capacity to to do that to feel that love like we don't but with yeah. Erica and Lucas we've seen that that scene yes. so we know what what they're capable of as, as siblings that's true okay so Erica tells off Murray she she calls him <laughs> Mr. Bunman <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Bunman and then she lets us know that Hopper's going to die she's just right about that She's like, well, he's going to die. Why is she correct? I mean, she's not. I mean, she's not. But but yeah, she says he's going to die. Thank you for the foreshadowing, Erica. Then Erica travels with who apparently are her real siblings, Steve, Dustin, and Robin, to Cerebro. She just leaves. But at the same time, I kind of appreciate the writer's efforts to make sure we knew that Erica would be safe. Yeah, because we never felt that the Cerebro group was at risk. No, I always felt like they were safe. Yeah, that... That that group felt safe versus the Griswold family, not safe. And mm-hmm. then 
Joyce Hopper and Murray, yeah, we also, also did not, not feel were safe. Yeah, weirdly enough, the Cerebro group, like, we were like, phew, okay, they're safe. No, no one knows where they are. Right. No one's going to run up that hill no in one's the middle of that, that field to find <laughs> them. So, we, yeah. But she also drops a truth bomb in the car on the way. She's the only one who admits that Susie sounds fake. <laughs> Another, like, sibling-ish yeah. interaction between she and Dustin. Yes. Like, that's very much little sibling being like, yeah, that's not real. <laughs> So once Scoop's troop at Cerebro realizes that the Griswold family is in trouble, this, by the way, sounds like we're, this is a different language. (laughs) We see the shot of Jonathan, Will, Nancy, and Lucas hiding behind the car. And it never occurred to me how random that group was. Like, what's Lucas doing there with them? Jonathan, Will, Nancy, and Lucas. Yeah, Lucas is, is on the floor next to Nancy, but he's sort of like facing away. Like he's facing towards where Max and them are. I think the intention of of the way that these groups were split was to keep Mike where he's been the, the entirety of season three, which was sandwiched between Max and L. Yeah, like, they had to split them up this way because mm-hmm. they needed Max, Mike, Max, Mike, and L to be together. Yeah, that makes sense. But poor Lucas it, is it basically is like, yeah, he's alone here. Like he's kind of facing the other way. Um, mm. It almost looks like he's praying to himself. Like he's kind of like, mm. like you can see his lips moving. You can't tell what he's saying or anything, but he's saying something uh, to himself. I don't know what. And he's turned in the direction of Mike, L, and Max, which leads me to believe he's probably very worried about Max since they got separated. And yeah. I wanted to say something originally about whether Lucas was wondering about Erica's safety, but then I realized he heard Dustin over the radio so he can infer that she's fine. Sure. And then when half of our gang gets to safety and starts throwing fireworks, Lucas throws the first one. <laughs> Play this, you ugly piece of shit. <laughs> and Absolutely. Did we ever talk about this? The fact that in season one, Lucas wrist rockets the Demogorgon in the face mouth, question mark. And then here he throws a firework directly into the skin spider's mouth. Huh. Iconic. No. Crit Somehow hit. we've not talked about something. <laughs> yeah. Right. Amazing. That is a crit hit. Right? And then I also just wanted to hone in on the fact that not only was this his ingenious out-of-the-box idea, but that it works. It does. Um, Even though Max kind of shits on it at first, it actually does work. And that he was also the one who stopped the mini skin spider's tentacle from taking L by hacking at it with an axe. Yeah. Go Lucas in this season. Go Lucas. Yeah. And our last interaction of the season comes during Hopper's letter when Dustin and Lucas bring Erica the box of Will's donated nerd stuff. And I actually teared up. This is going to be a running theme. Um, get ready for more of me crying rewatching this because I, I noticed the huge difference from season two. Lucas knocks on Erica's door. Oh, uh-huh. And he's smiling at her when she opens it. And this is a big change from barging in and stealing items in season two. And then we get this sweet reaction from Erica when she realizes what's in the box and it's D&D. Yeah, it's like they went from this. This was like a like an exchange of item, but also like a passing of the torch in a lot yeah. of ways. Yeah. No. And it it also strikes me how like in season two, that interaction was Lucas coming in and taking something from her. Yes. And now he comes in and gives something to her. This is a giving. Yeah. And that's season three with those two. I love the way that ends for them. Right? Okay, let's get uncomfy again. Oh, boy. Again. We were comfy for a little while. I know. Lucas and Erica are so safe. They are. Again, it's just a scoops troop. They're the yep. safe ones. I know. Season three is amazing, by the way. If you hate it, bye. 
You can't sit with us. You can't sit with us. <laughs> Unlike season two with Maxine and Billy, we see very few direct interactions between them. Good riddance. Okay. Billy spends most of this season indisposed like Will in season one. Yeah. The first thing we notice about Max and Susie, do you copy, is that she's not just hanging out with Lucas, she's dating him. So mm-hmm. Billy must have kept his promise to leave Max and, his, and her friends alone. Yay. Billy is also working at the town pool as a lifeguard, basically just minding his own business, it seems. Yeah. Except he's still an asshole, fat-shaming small children. <laughs> the moms love him, especially Karen. Yes. The fact that he noticed that she had a new bathing suit. I know, right? Like, wow, what a caring gentleman. <laughs> what an observant young man. <laughs> These two... <laughs> Billy is the definition of an I could fix him. Right. <laughs> so Karen and Billy have a very flirty exchange where they discuss swimming lessons and how Billy's somehow been entrusted with giving them to the youth. And then they essentially agree to meet up at a Motel 6 on Cornwallis for a whimsical night of adultery and breaststrokes. Of course. (laughs) Billy just needs a mommy. He absolutely does. He needs a mommy so bad. But all jokes aside, we have spoken at length about what it is about Karen that appeals to Billy. And she is a mother figure to him. But he's now an adult. So he has gone full Freud- and sexualize the hell out of the need for this mother figure. Yeah. Who's that guy? Oedipus? Is that the one? Yep. Oedipus was the first motherfucker. <laughs> By the end of the... Ch- that is that is a Bo Burnham joke. I am not taking credit for that. <laughs> I was going to say, I feel like I've heard that. <laughs> yeah, that is not me. By the end of the first chapter, Billy has been chosen. On his way to pick up Karen for their rendezvous, he becomes flayed number one. In the mall rats, Billy is very sweaty and confused the entire time. He likes it cold, but it's Me July. <laughs> You're sweaty and confused. At all times. That is that is us at the end of our recording session. That's so <laughs> true. Sweaty and confused. <laughs> Always sweaty. Confused about what time of day it is. <laughs> so anyway, Karen feels badly that she stood Billy up. Not that he would have made it to Motel 6 anyway. <laughs> She confronts him in the locker room at the pool and Billy suffers a vision of injuring Karen while she is doing him the kindness of apologizing. And again, we spoke about this, but I really do single out Karen as the one woman that we see being kind to Billy. Yeah. She also validates his anger. She says, I understand if you're angry with me. When is the last time someone has validated Billy's feelings? Probably literally never. Probably not one time except his mom. Yeah. She's also making the choice to not hurt her family, which is not a choice anyone made in Billy's family. Mm -hmm. Nobody made an effort in that family to not hurt each other. Susan knew that she stood no chance against Neil as much as it probably pained her to see how he treats her stepson. Even Susan doesn't choose the family. Even though she literally chose the family. Right. Billy, however, resists this vision of injuring Karen, instead coldly telling her to stay away from him. Not because he's upset with her, but because he does not want to hurt her. That's how I interpret it. Yeah. And I still love the choice of Billy for this role in season three. He is the ideal mind flayer victim. While Billy is busy recruiting Heather, Max and Elle are partying it up at the mall. 
By the case of the missing lifeguard, Max and Elle play spin the bottle, but Elle's version. And they realize that something is up with Max's brother. Something isn't right. The two set out to investigate, starting with Billy's room, and they finally end up at the Holloway house where a very flayed Billy is having dinner with Heather, who is also flayed, and her parents. Heather! So creepy. (laughs) (laughs) At the end of chapter three, Max and Billy have arguably their most pleasant interaction of the series. Being flayed really does wonders for the sibling dynamic. Honestly, right? Who needs, like, antidepressants? Just get flayed. Or therapy. Wow. Who needs antidepressants? Just get flayed. Really just brightens you right up. We are people who should be (laughs) giving this input. It's true. As as a person who's recently been flayed, I feel great. (laughs) Max tells Billy they wanted to make sure everything was okay. And he refers to Max as his sister, not once, but twice. And there's the, the red flag. That, Mm -hmm. you know, everyone's supposed to pick up on like, hey, he doesn't say that about her. Nope. Maxine. The sauna test starts with Elle insisting that something is wrong with Billy, but Max continues to deny it. Wrong is like his default. Max also says something else, though. She says, but it's nice to know he's not a murderer because that would have totally sucked. It's a possibility to her. It it, 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 it is. She entertained it. She did. Which that says something too. Right? When Max is watching Billy at the pool through the binoculars, she also makes another comment. God, I hope it's not you. I really hope it's not you. Mm. And after everything, Max doesn't wish ill will on this person. She doesn't want him to be bad. Even though he was incredibly abusive to her, she still loves him. Yeah. I, I have to wonder, like, I feel like we don't get any, like, direct evidence of this. But I wonder if... Like Max was proud of Billy for his trajectory in this this season where like he had a job, like he was yeah. actually making something of himself, you know, getting out of the house and not being a shitbag towards her. I mean, she does say in Dear Billy that she had hopes for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When they trap Billy in the sauna, it is Max who who he pleads with directly. And I still love watching Lucas watch Max in this scene. It's like he knows how complicated this relationship is and how hard this must be for her. And this is so similar to Joyce being the one to turn up the heat on Will. Mm. Billy pleads with Max, but Max is like, do it. So she has to make the same choice that Joyce had to make in season two. Yeah. And then the true beauty of the scene is that Will is the one who gets to turn up the heat this time. Wow, we did not mention that and we really should have. We just say so much, but so, so little. little. I know. This is why this this doing these these episodes has been great because I've just like rewatched the entire series. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> As the scene continues, anytime Billy asks for reprieve, he directly addresses Max. He eventually gives up his hooting and hollering, <laughs> sits down on the <laughs> I was trying to be so serious, but I wrote hooting and hollering. (laughs) I was trying to seriously hoot and holler. (laughs) Anyway, he sits down on the floor of the sauna, shrinking himself, and he begins to sob. I don't know why I've done this to myself, but I'm going to read everything Uh, Billy says. And I want us to think of him not as talking about the mind flare, but as talking about Neil. Okay, he's talking about Neil, okay? He's not talking about the mind flare. We're both crying. Uh, He says, it's not my fault. It's not... (laughs) 
<laughs> it's not my fault. It's not my fault, Max. I promise you it's not my fault. I've done things, Max, really bad things. I didn't mean to. He made me do it. It's like a shadow, a giant shadow. Please, Max, it's not my fault, okay? Max, please, please believe me, Max. It's not my fault. I tried to stop him, okay? I did. Obviously, we spoke about Billy feeling responsible for every adverse event in his life. Mm -hmm. Like he believes subconsciously that everything is his fault. This whole scene to me just feels like Billy's inner child. Yeah. We spoke about Jungian psychology in reference to the inner child wound, but the shadow is also another common concept. Carl Jung believed that one way to heal your inner child is by reparenting yourself, and one aspect of reparenting is sometimes referred to as shadow work. I have the shadow work journal. Yeah, I had one too. Yeah. A couple years ago. The shadow is a concept first coined by Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung that describes those aspects of the personality that we choose to reject and repress. For one reason or another, we all have parts of ourselves that we don't like or that we think society won't like, so we push those parts down into our unconscious psyches. It is this collection of repressed aspects of our identity that Jung referred to as our shadow self. It's just a giant shadow. Billy continues to sob and plead that it's not his fault, and Max begins to cry with her brother. And this is such a powerful Max and Billy scene. She can't stand to see him like this, and as much as we know how this ends, I almost feel like this moment in their relationship was cathartic. It's not an apology, per se, from Billy to Max. We get that later. But I do feel like Billy pleading with Max that it's not his fault is an indirect way of saying, I was hurting you because I was being hurt. Mm -hmm. In a way, after this point, Billy succumbs to his shadow self, and we only see him return without his shadow at the very end of this season once Eleven has helped him heal his inner child. In the flayed, Max seems pretty unbothered, all things considered. (laughs) I will say she's not outwardly upset, but I don't think we really expect her to be. In Amanda's favorite chapter of Stranger Things, (laughs) E Pluribus Unum, Billy shows Elle the memory of his mother on the beach in California when he was a little boy. We see him ask his mom for more time. He's obviously referring to surfing. But in a way, it feels symbolic of him wishing for more time with her in general. She also says, any longer than that, dad's going to be mad, okay? And Billy's mom warns him to watch out for rip currents. And we already talked about how this parallels Billy's conversation with Karen at the pool back when we were talking about these chapters. But to me, what we're really seeing here is a parent trying to keep him safe, even in this subtle way of just issuing a warning. Watch out for rip currents. Later, Elle walks further into the storm that has become Billy's mind lair. Hmm. Hmm. She encounters other memories of Neil berating him when he was a young boy. He calls his son a pussy. Talk about degrading someone's masculinity. Mm Mm-hmm. Young Billy retreats further into the storm, Elle on his heels, when she gives Neil that very mean look. I love that. We see, <laughs> she's like, <laughs> her arms are like, so back. mean. <laughs> How dare you talk to that boy like that? But she, she knows what it's like to be sp- spoken, like, yeah. her father figure, boo, boo. We see a memory of Neil also abusing his wife, Billy's mother, accusing her of adultery of all things, 
and we think of what Billy and Karen were about to engage in earlier in season three. And Billy's sitting by. He's young still. Young Billy lunges at his father to defend his mother. I tried to stop him, okay? I did. Ugh. I'm telling you. Right? That sauna test monologue of his. Bad. Then the memory of when Billy's mom left, clearly not because of him, but because of Neil. And then Billy turning to bullying and violence after this point, Neil getting remarried and introducing Billy to his new sister, Maxine. And I think Max represents to Billy a forced moving on, a confirmation that his mother is gone and is not coming back. Mm -hmm. Right after we see the memory of him meeting Max, he shows Elle the night he was flayed. And that just feels symbolic to me. Yeah. Finally, in as Amanda put it earlier, the the best episode of any television in history of television. I texted her that at like (laughs) 2.30 in the morning. (laughs) In the Battle of Starcourt, Max becomes our first character to deal with the legitimate death of a sibling. Jonathan sort of dealt with the pseudo death of Will in season one, but Billy, Billy does die. It's no fake body here. Mm -hmm. In fact, there probably wasn't a body recovered at all. Yeah. One of the saddest scenes these two share is when Billy is chasing them through the back hallways of the mall and Max attempts to reach him by stating his name and his address. Billy, you don't have to do this. Billy, your name's Billy. Billy Hargrove. You live on 4819 Cherry Lane. Billy, please. I'm Max. I'm your... And then before Max can say the word sister, he backhands her and she is knocked unconscious. Obviously, Billy is completely lost by this point, but Max truly just wants her brother back, which is kind of wild when you think about it. The Billy she knows is preferable to this one. Yeah. Billy then attempts to kill Eleven by delivering her to the Mind Flayer, but instead Eleven, unlike Max, is successful in reaching him. Eleven reminds Billy of his childhood memory of his mom on the beach in California. Seven feet. You told her the wave was seven feet. Billy begins to cry with Eleven as she's explaining how his mom was pretty. And he, he was happy. She gets through to him not by reminding him of the Billy Hargrove who lived at 4819 Cherry Lane, but by reminding him of his inner child who was happy with his mom on a beach in California. Yeah. Then Elle does something we've really only seen Karen do. She shows Billy kindness and tenderness, placing her hand on his cheek. And it's only when his inner child is healed at this moment that he returns to himself. And I don't even just mean his unflayed self that we knew from season two. I think I mean his actual self, like mm-hmm. the what the Billy that could have been. Yeah. As Billy sacrifices himself or maybe surrenders himself to the mind flayer, Max watches and calls for him. She goes to him, pleading with him to get up. And with his last breath, he apologizes to her. But it was only after he was healed that he had the humility to finally apologize for the pain and abuse he brought into Max's life. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, Before we move on to season four, I want to wrap up season three by saying that Max's and Billy's relationship to me is probably one of the most well-written things about the show. It's like pain, but it's also beauty. And I think we can find forgiveness for adult Billy if we can recognize the pain of child Billy. His actions as an adult are not justifiable. We are not apologists. But as we've said before, and we'll say again with context, we can at least maybe begin to understand. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. That was, that was important. Yeah. Ugh. Okay. Dear Lord. 
This is I, terrible. I just want to start this out by saying I very much do not recommend watching the Battle of Starcourt and Dear Billy back to back ever. <laughs> that I, is like a terrible idea that we both did. <laughs> I I especially do not recommend this if you are a person who has periods. Has that's hormones. All, that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> so in season four, we definitely get a little bit of like up and down character development from Lucas. But we get a good amount of character development from Erica, for sure. So again, I'm going to talk about some like big character moments for these two throughout the season because they do spend the bulk of it apart until later. Um, And then we'll talk about their actual interactions. So our first Erica sighting of season four is in the Hellfire Club. And we immediately get a payoff from the literal previous scene I just mentioned with the box from Will Mm. with D&D in it. So Erica joins Hellfire for a night. While I love Erica finally being treated like an equal by the gang, I kind of hate that she's not at Lucas's big game. So true. I never thought of that. Me either. And And neither is Max. No, neither is Max. And side note, neither are his parents. Or any of his friends. Nobody. Nobody. He looks into the stands during the basketball game and there's no one. After the game, he sees Erica celebrating... With his friends. It really puts a damper on Lucas's own victory because he sees his little sister celebrating a victory with his club, by the way, on on the night that none of them came to his game. Yeah. Yeah. So do we think that this is like disappointment over his friends replacing him with his sister, the betrayal from his sister that none of them came? Probably a little of everything. I was going to say, it feels like it could be both. Yeah, I think so. Well, in Vecna's Curse, Lucas wakes up with his first hangover, which <laughs> that's a big milestone in growing up. And we actually, I feel like we didn't talk about that. How You're right. We didn't. Lucas is definitely growing up quicker than his friends. He is. Yes. Um, and he's the first of the boys that we see engage in this kind of behavior, this like drinking, partying, like older teenager behavior. So true. Yeah. Then later in the chapter, once Jason realizes Eddie's and Hellfire's possible connection to Chrissy's death, Lucas immediately uses his sister as a scapegoat. The Mm -hmm. hell is that? Yep. Yeah. He tells Jason that Hellfire and D&D are not evil. His sister is into it. Which, like, okay, I don't think he did it maliciously. I think it was more to illustrate to Jason that, like, a little girl is into it. Like, it can't be satanic. This, of course, doesn't work, though. And Jason burns the Hellfire poster in front of them. Lucas is very uneasy, obviously. Psycho killer. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Erica does not appear in Vecna's Curse or the monster and the superhero, but I wanted to focus in on Lucas's incredible character development throughout the monster and the superhero. So once again, Lucas wakes up at Benny's Burgers in this chapter, second morning in a row, somehow. Lucas agrees to go freak hunting with Jason and company, despite them giving him an out. Yeah, so peer pressure is, is clearly like winning out a lot for Lucas this season. In Lucas's next scene, he once again deflects to Erica when Jason questions why the members of Corroded Coffin know him. Which like side note, I just realized that that's Corroded Coffin and I have questions. One of your classmates just turned up brutally murdered in your lead singer's house and now he's missing and well, you know, we still have to practice. You're, yeah, you're just engaging in band practice like, in, your, in the garage. The show must go on, I guess. Like <laughs> They really do say that, don't they? Like, 
your lead singer is missing, bro, and wanted for murder <laughs> of one of your classmates who you knew. It's just the metalness of it all. Yes. <laughs> it just really That's, contributes. It's to just the, the rock and roll lifestyle. The metal. <laughs> the metal. Exactly. Luckily, this first instance of violence from Jason is enough to make Lucas realize his mistake in who he's chosen to hang out with. Um, once he sees what is happening to Gareth, he is horrified that he is associated with these people. And towards the end of the chapter, Lucas does his best damage control. He calls Dustin on his own radio in his own house to warn him about Jason's gang of merry men coming to find him. And I just wanted to stop and think about what this means for a second, that Lucas no longer carries a supercom. Interesting, because he had to get to Dustin's to yeah. get one. Yeah, I, that never wow. occurred to me before, but he literally has to break into Dustin's house to use the radio because he doesn't carry one anymore. That's There's so much of that. In, mm-hmm. It's just like these little subtle things. Like I even think of season three when Nancy like hurriedly backs out of the driveway and all the bikes topple over. Yeah. And it's just like this like innocence is dead. Yes. Lucas isn't carrying a super calm. The bikes are toppled. Like it's just these little things. Yes. I also just want us to think about what Lucas had to do in order to get this message to Dustin. He purposely had to lead Jason to Dustin's house knowing that this was a risk. Mm-hmm. And then he literally jumped through a very high window to get into Dustin's room. <laughs> broke into his house to use the supercom. We never talk about about Jason and Billy. Mm. And like the risk of bringing this person places. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and giving giving them information like Karen giving them the bot giving him the the address of the buyer's house. Yeah. That's true. The risk of Lucas bringing Jason to yeah. Dustin's house. Right. Like that's really risky showing him exactly where he lives. But Lucas, I guess, was willing to accept the risk there knowing that he would be able to reach Dustin. Yep. So finally, at the end of this chapter, we see that Lucas has intentionally misled Jason's gang to Hopper's cabin and that he's going to escape the group once and for all. OK, just like, you know, take a shot of water, water every time I say that I cry. But <laughs> I cry every time we get this slow motion shot of Lucas running from Hopper's cabin in the dark. Despite everything, he is loyal to his friends. Like he is. He takes these wild risks. And I also just realized something else. Lucas was of the thought that Eddie killed Chrissy like right away. But then as soon as Dustin said that it was bullshit, it was bullshit. It became bullshit. Yes. Immediately. No questions asked. It became bullshit. That's because everything that leaves Dustin's mouth is fact. That is so true. And I also just wanted to point this out. I forgot to write it, but I never noticed in that scene that Lucas is carrying a crowbar. Wow. Yeah, when he's running from the house, he's carrying a crowbar, which means that they were going to kill Eddie and he had to convince them that he would be a part of it. Yes, he had to go so far as to also wield a weapon. Yes. Chilling. Right? And dear Billy, Erica is back just for a minute. Jason shows up to the Sinclair's doorstep, which... Let's talk about Billy showing up to the Sinclair's doorstep. We were just talking about in season two, how eerie that is, to question Erica about where her brother is. Jason does his best to intimidate Erica, but no one on earth can intimidate Erica. (laughs) So she reads him to absolute filth, slams the door in his face. With duck hunt. Yes. Also insinuates that Lucas and Jason are dating, which I'm sure he loves. Um, (laughs) We also get the explanation of where Lucas's parents think he's been. 
He's been paying Erica to cover him, apparently. But loyalty, you know, despite yeah. the pay. They're, they're yep. loyal to each other. And she's also loyal to Max in this moment, which I love. And I, I can relate because I tell my sister-in-law all the time that if she and my brother ever get divorced, I'm with her. There you go. You know? <laughs> Erica, I love this idea of Erica and Max as sister-in-laws. Right? Erica's for the girls. This is definitely a tough chapter for Lucas, of course. Um, he tries desperately to reassure Max, but she is not having it. When Max gets to the cemetery, Lucas tries desperately to get through to Max. He gets out of the car and chases her so that he can tell her that he's there for her. And now I'm crying again. And then when it's time to save her, he is the one who knows what her favorite song is. Even though it's clear that they don't hang out very much anymore, he still knows Max the best. Mm -hmm. And I think that this illustrates for us that he's just very caring in all aspects of his life. Mm -hmm. And then this is absolutely nothing, but I just needed to say it. The way he catches Max kind of in his arms at the end and says, I thought we lost you is absolutely <laughs> devastating and I deserve financial compensation. <laughs> So I want to skip ahead to the massacre at Hawkins Lab, which is the next chapter that Erica actually appears in. This is where things finally start to become like substantive between Lucas and Erica, finally. So she calls out to the entire room of parents and police officers that Lucas, Dustin, and Max are lying about why they were at the lake. Erica says the whole couch is on fire, just the facts. <laughs> the fire is consuming us. <laughs> Thank you for the direct quote. No problem. And I don't, I, I honestly didn't take this as like annoying younger sister. I took this as like Erica senses that they might be in danger and she wants them to tell the truth. Yeah. I don't know how accurate that is, but that's the sense I got. And welcome now to the longest interaction that Lucas and Erica have had in the series so far. Erica blackmails Lucas into telling her what is going on. Lucas tries to tell her to go away at first and like just keep her keep her uninvolved in this and yeah. at first like I took this as Lucas being irritated with her but then I also think this could be Lucas trying to protect Erica yep so stay out of it I'm gonna I'm gonna err on that side and we also learn Lucas's thoughts on Tina he fucking hates Tina he's it's like very passionate yes he's like if you tell anyone especially Tina what the hell is his deal <laughs> with Tina <laughs> why does he have beef with Tina Tina's probably like 11. Yeah. Like, why does he have beef with her? And I also love in this interaction, he like leans on the, the kitchen island and like slides across it to get into Erica's face to threaten her with smothering her in her sleep if she tells anybody about this. And once again, Erica cannot be intimidated. She's like, no. yeah, I got it. Uh, but this makes no sense. She is also the one who ends up recognizing the extremely obvious blinking of the dining room light which nobody else seems to notice, even though it's, again, extremely obvious. This tips off Dustin to Eddie tapping SOS in Morse code in the Upside Down. So thank you, Erica, for that. Because some, somehow no one else saw it. Um, <laughs> Lucas and Dustin then steal Holly's light bright out from her literal hands. Welcome back, Holly. I know. And Round then, of applause. Erica swoops in and offers Holly a thing of Skittles for your understanding. The and little sisters. Yes. It reminds me of in season two when Lucas stormed in and took He-Man from, from Erica. And I bet she would have wanted some Skittles. Yeah. So she's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this little sister what I know she wants as, <laughs> as a little sister. And then they communicate with the Watergate gang. Erica commits a misdemeanor. 
And then they rush away to Eddie's trailer. And there's a moment when they tie up the bed sheets in Eddie's trailer to to like, you know, be like the rope between realms. And yeah. when they realize there is like some serious fuckery happening with the laws of physics, Erica comments on how this is the craziest shit she has seen in her life. And she has seen some crazy shit. And she and Dustin share a little high five. They're so cute. I know. And this is not where Erica and Lucas are right now, but I think they'll get there. But Same. Dustin is kind of Erica's real brother right now. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. Erica and Lucas then join Eddie in Grand Theft Auto or Grand Theft Home, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> auto home. <laughs> <laughs> Bundling home and auto. There's <laughs> <laughs> <Brothers> insurance. <laughs> anyway. Lucas and Erica have this sweet moment out in the out here in the field when they're making spears and Erica makes fun of Lucas for being a bench warmer. But Lucas points out that Erica has been to every game and mom and dad definitely did not force you to do that because mom and dad can't force you to do shit. Which tells me that she would have been in his championship game if she wasn't taking his place in Hellfire Club. Right. But th- exactly. She points out then that she was at every game except the one that mattered. And I rewatched that a few times to try and understand what her tone was. And is this like her way of expressing regret over missing the tournament game? I'm not really sure what exactly she means by that comment, Mm. but it, it seems maybe that's what she means. And she finishes out this interaction by saying, even though you're a bench riding loser, you're still my brother. Just the facts. (laughs) <laughs> and Lucas's reaction is at first kind of bewildered, but then he gives us a little smile. Oh, yeah. And that's like our first kind and like honest interaction between these yeah. two. So I, I hope that's like indication of better things to come. But finally, in the piggyback, Erica is an important part of the plan. While Lucas and Max lure Vecna inside the Creel house, it's Erica's job to give the alert with the flashlight to everyone that each phase of the plan can go forward. But poor Erica gets physically attacked by a whole ass man. I cannot. Right? And then that's okay, though, because she crit hits Andy right in the crotch with the flashlight. Another Sinclair crit hit. Many of those. Right? The Sinclairs are like really on it with the crit hits. She runs up to the Creel attic, but it's too late as Jason has locked the door behind him as he beats the shit out of her brother. And I think this must have been really scary for Erica to hear what was happening on the other side of the door. She was like pounding on the door, doing her best to pick the lock, which seems like a skill that Erica might Mm, have. Max could teach her. For sure. For sure. And yeah, like I just, I hate this. I hate this scene. I hate this interaction. I hate it all. But yeah, she had to listen to all of that happening on the other side of the door while she tried to get in to help her brother And then Lucas finally lands his own crit hit on Jason, slamming him into the wall and knocking him unconscious. And then we have this absolutely horrible, traumatizing, emotionally damaging scene that I will not be watching today, that I didn't watch today because we practice self-care in this house. And I had cried like five times already (laughs) in the past hour. Stranger Things is self-care it doesn't matter which scene it is (laughs) it's true you know it's fine even if you cry but yeah hate that anyway lucas calls for erica to call an ambulance for poor max and she immediately runs off to do so no questions asked then when max actually dies in his arms lucas cries out for erica in the most agonizing scream that i do not ever need to hear again horrible 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 how how did how did 
how did he do that? How did Caleb do that? That's it's, what I need. To oh, know. I know. Like, it sounds like someone legitimately killed someone in front of him. Like, that, it really sounds like he is just out of his mind traumatized. It's wild. But yeah, I just, like, I appreciate that scene as much as I hate it because seeing these two be there for each other in such a scary moment is like, shit gets real, you know? Now and they have also, shared trauma. They do. And like, even something like, Erica having to understand the gravity of Max dying in her brother's arms. Yeah. And, like, we already talked about, like, Max and Erica as, like, you know, what bond they could maybe share. Yeah. Right. So even, I mean, even if it wasn't someone she knew, having to see someone, like, mutilated like that and dying, pretty traumatic for a, what, 12-year-old? Yeah, pretty horrible. Finally, we cut to Lucas in Max's hospital room, reading her the talisman at her bedside. And we see Erica is sitting behind him, just silently supporting him. By the way, the wiki says that Susan Hargrove is also in the hospital room with Max, and that is definitely incorrect. Should we watch it again? I did. I did, I did not see Susan. Yeah, I double checked. She is not there. Susan number two. <laughs> but yeah, Erica's sitting there just like with some silent support while Lucas reads to Max. Yeah. And we just see the sweetness and this caring displayed openly between them now. It used to be like, you know, Erica kind of putting up this ruse of like, oh, I don't care about him. But yeah. now that they've been through this horror together, things are different. And it's a big change from earlier in the season when Erica really didn't bat an eye at missing Lucas's big game. You know, she just said yes to joining Hellfire and mm -hmm. didn't even think about it. Our final shot of these two is when the upside down dust starts to rain down and we see Lucas and Erica looking out the window together and they share a knowing glance and that's it. And I just love this shot because I think they say so much in their looks, but this is also one of, if not the first time that we see these two communicate something with just a look yeah. between themselves. And I don't, I don't think we'd ever seen that before. And I think it tells you everything about how their relationship has evolved pretty dramatically over the course of this season. I think between her sitting in the hospital room with Lucas and then this scene with them looking out the window, this is like a we're in this together now type yes. of thing. Yes. And that's all I've got for season four. I don't want anybody to be in this situation in season five, even though I know it's inevitable. But that attic moment with Erica and Lucas where, she, where he screams for her and she comes up the steps... That's what I want for Nancy and Mike. Like that, yeah. like that type of thing is what I would like to see. Yeah. Just like something with gravity where they have to support each other. Yeah. Okay. Let's do this. As we know, in season four, Billy is now dead. But Max's story in season four is all about her grief, her guilt, and also her healing process surrounding Billy's demise. I found some information on complicated or disenfranchised grief. So the death of an abuser can place their survivors in a snowstorm of complicated and conflicting emotions. Perpetrators of domestic abuse are master manipulators, so it's natural that feelings about their death are not likely to be straightforward. This can add to further feelings of isolation if the survivor's support network does not understand how they can be grieving someone that was so harmful to them. It's also likely that there will be a degree of relief, which often triggers tricky and conflicting emotions for which themselves and others may judge them. 
And I definitely think we see that Max has isolated herself from her support network. And later we learn that Lucas had sort of written her off, largely due to her or to his lack of understanding. I also think there's like the opposite that can also happen where not that loved ones can't understand how you could grieve someone who abused you, but also the opposite where others in your life might not understand the degree to which this person abused you and won't understand why your feelings are so complicated. Yes. Yeah, for sure. In the Hellfire Club, it becomes immediately apparent that Max is struggling emotionally with Billy's death. We see her at the pep rally in the beginning, kind of wince when Jason mentions Billy's name as a victim of the mall fire. And then later during her session with Ms. Kelly, we learn that her grades are suffering. Susan has started drinking. Neil has left them. The implication is that she's also haunted by nightmares of Billy's death. Also Vecna, you know, but he's just an opportunist already preying on Max's vulnerabilities. In Vecna's curse and in the monster and the superhero, Max becomes pretty involved with Dustin, Steve, Robin, and Eddie as they try to piece together what's going on after Chrissy's death. And in the monster and the superhero, we get a very brief moment where Max goes to Ms. Kelly's house. She's not really there for therapeutic purposes, but Ms. Kelly does say to her, do you think you're ready to talk more about that night? Referencing the night Billy died. And Max deflects, though, after suffering a flashback again of Billy's death. And I think the implication here is, is that this is a topic that Max has actively avoided discussing in her counseling sessions. She has not addressed Billy's death directly. Yeah. By the end of The Monster and the Superhero, we learn that Max is Vecna's next target. Mm-hmm. Which brings us to Chapter 4, Dear Billy. Now Max is forced to contend with her own mortality. Max realizes that many things have been left unsaid between her and the people around her. So she drafts up letters to everyone, including Billy, even though he is very dead. In Dear Billy, she sits before her brother's grave and confesses to him a number of things that could never be shared between them when he was alive. She gives him a sort of update, namely about how Neil was a mess and left Max and Susan. She tells him how they moved to a trailer park, and she says that ever since he left, everything's been a disaster. Note how she perceives everything after his death as a disaster, despite the hellscape that was their relationship prior. Part of Max's letter is also her frustration that the public can't know of Billy's sacrifice. And this to me feels like she wants redemption for him. Hmm. She wants people to know that her brother was a good person, probably because it was so meaningful for her to finally see him this way too. She also shares with Billy her flashbacks of his death. I play that moment back in my head all the time. Sometimes I imagine myself running to you, pulling you away. I imagine that if I had, that you'd still be here and every, everything would be right again. And then later she scolds herself for just standing there and watching him die. And we know that there is nothing that Max could have done, but she blames herself for what happened. We're also back to this idea of blame, taking responsibility for things outside of your control and how doing that can be emotionally torturous, just as it was for Billy. And Max has survivor's guilt. I have a quote. There are many reasons the survivor can feel guilt after the death of an abuser. Self-blame for the situation is extremely common after domestic abuse, even without a death. Mm -hmm. Max then tells Billy that she imagines that they could have become friends if he hadn't died. Real friends, like a real brother and sister. They hated each other, though, so she knows that's impossible. But she thought maybe they could try again. 
So not only is she mourning Billy as a person, but she's also mourning the sibling relationship that they never had. Yeah. I found a quote by a clinical psychologist named Amanda De Los Santos. That's not you. No. (laughs) (laughs) It says, or she says rather, there is an illusion of what could have been that may play on repeat in your thoughts. If you find yourself thinking, if only he had changed, maybe we would have had a completely different life. Know that this is normal. Unfortunately, it's also a fantasy. Nothing would have been different. No, for sure. Finally, Max says that she tried to be normal for a while, happy, but she thinks maybe part of her died that day too. Not to mention, she hasn't told anyone this. She apologizes to him. I'm sorry. I'm so, so sorry, Billy. Love your shitty little sister, Max. In regards to not telling anyone this, I think this has a lot to do with the fear that we spoke about earlier of like people not understanding why you would be grieving someone who abused you. Yeah. In another quote, with domestic abuse being such a complex process, it's sometimes hard for outsiders to grasp that it's possible to love or remain dependent on someone who has had such a negative impact on your life. For this reason, survivors may feel very lonely in their grief as those around them are not likely to fully understand it. I think the way that they portrayed Max's grief was so spot on to how this process can actually play out. Now, I want to get to this chilling dialogue between Max and Billy in her Vecna vision. Billy comes to her in her vision in the cemetery after she reads the letter to him. And of course, we know that this is Vecna toying with her. I think at the root of this vision, though, is what Max actually wants. She wants one last chance to see her brother, to reconcile, to make amends, and she wants mutual forgiveness between them. I've been waiting for you to say those words, Max, waiting so very long. And when Billy says this, Max gulps, which I think is like a really important reminder for us and her that she is or was afraid of this person Mm -hmm. because I think she's lost sight of that, that this was a scary person because now he's gone and dead and he's not tormenting her anymore as far as abuse is concerned. So it's, it's easy to forget that you're afraid of someone like him. Yeah, for sure. Billy, who is covered in blood, brushes a tear from Max's cheek. A gesture that in life, he never afforded her. Yeah. He taunts her. You know, I think there's a part of you buried somewhere deep that wanted me to die that day. That was maybe even relieved. Happy. And now that we spoke about Max's survivor's guilt, she probably also has guilt because Billy is probably correct. So on top of the survivor's guilt, she feels guilt at the relief that she feels that he's gone. Yes. This is a truth, though, that she hasn't professed out loud to anyone. She's not told anybody this, not even to herself. Yeah. But if there wasn't any truth in it, Vecna wouldn't be using it. That's how I see it. Yeah. He knows. Yeah. Billy continues. That's why you stood there, isn't it, Max? That is why you feel such guilt. Guilt. Why you hide from your friends, why you hide from the world. I just, I just, I love it. And why sometimes late at night, you have sometimes wished to follow me, follow me into death. That is why I am here to end your suffering once and for all. We did not discuss how absolutely fucked it was for Vecna to place Billy in an escort role here. Like he is here to take her with him. Yeah into death like that is fucked not to mention this is somebody who max has feared could literally kill her true 
Yeah, like physically kill her. Yes. Yes. After this scene in Dear Billy, Max takes a turn for the better. She really does, which does bring a whole new meaning to her ascension and subsequent escape, I think. Yeah. We spoke about how this was very much Max running back to herself, but I think we can also look at it as Max freeing herself from Billy at last. As damaging as this experience was, it was cathartic. She was released from the shackles of her abuse and of her grief at the same time. And I really think we see her let Billy go after this. You're right. Throughout the rest of season four, we see Max's mental health improve. We don't hear much more about Billy, except in the exchange she and Lucas share in the dive when they're wandering in circles looking for Skull Rock. He apologizes to her for not seeing how bad it was for her after Billy died. And I think this is another healing moment for Max. Yeah. And finally, in the piggyback, we know what fate befalls Max. As she's dying in Lucas's arm, she pleads with him that she's not ready to die. She doesn't want to die. She's not ready to go. And I think even though, you know, she ends the season unresponsive, I want to kind of conclude Max and Billy with the fact that Max won. For all the trauma and abuse she endured, she chose life. Yeah. So to me, that means she prevailed. Right. <laughs> okay, let's talk about <laughs> our final thoughts on these two okay. pairs. Okay, so I don't have a ton of final thoughts. I just think overall we're going to see how an age gap between siblings becomes less important and less yeah. significant feeling over time. I think Erica is finally going to join the party full time in season five, and I think she needs to. Agreed. Yeah, that's really all I had to say about these two. Okay. For Max and Billy, I've determined in doing this that I do not sympathize with Billy, but I do sympathize with his inner child. I think his story is tragic, but it's also really moving. And as always, his actions are inexcusable, but I hope we can all come away from this with a better understanding of him. And I think that's just where, like, I don't want to say any more about Billy. Like, you know, I just, yeah. we, we, you know, it's about Max at the end of this all. Yes. So as for Max, as I said, she chose life. So to me, that's what she's going to get. I don't care. If they choose to make whole on this she's dead nonsense, I will riot in the streets. I'm suing. In season two, we witnessed how these two siblings were abused, Max by Billy and Billy by Neil. In season three, we got to witness with Max Billy's own journey of healing. And in season four, we got to witness Max's journey of healing from Billy. So what do I want for Max in season five? I want us to finally see Max truly without Billy. No more Billy. Billy is gone. Yeah. We've all worked through the Billy. No more. Season five is for Max because that's what she deserves. Yeah. She deserves a happy life with healing. She deserves Sue to to be alive, (laughs) maybe, and, and recovered, you know? I hope that she, like is also transcendent in some way. Like, I almost want them to give her the qualities. This might sound really dramatic, but <laughs> I want her to, to have, like, goddess qualities. You know what I mean? Yeah, I want like, her I to want... Have, have been, like, enlightened in some way. Yes. She needs a power. We need to give this girl a power. I agree. She deserves it. She totally does. Cool. <sighs> okay. Wow. Okay, so that was Stranger Sibs Part 2. Oh my goodness. I, I, like a complete fool, was like, oh, this is going to be a shorter one. I can't, you can't do Max and Billy tiny. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Whew. All right. 
Okay. We'll see you all next week. Good night. Good night, everyone. (laughs) It's time for bed. It is. It's like three something in the afternoon. Oh, it's like four. Anyway. All right. Stay strange, everybody. Stay strange. (laughs) To keep in touch and stay informed, join us on our Starcourt Study Hall Discord server and follow us on Instagram at Starcourt Study Hall.